Welcome to the Public Morality. What is police accountability? Arriving at a definition may depend greatly on who is asked the question. Given the number of high-profile police shootings in recent years, it's not surprising there has been growing public outcry for greater public accountability without coalescing around specific policy proposals. But with roughly 18,000 police departments nationally of varying scopes and training methods, can police accountability be something that's streamlined? We are joined in this conversation by law professor Cammie Chavis. Professor Chavis is director of the Criminal Justice Program at Wake Forest University of Law and also serves as vice provost. She writes and teaches extensively in the areas related to criminal law, criminal procedure, and criminal justice reform. Professor Cammie Chavis, welcome to The Public Morality. Hello, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. I want to begin, um, there are nearly 18,000 police departments nationwide. They embody different sizes, different responsibilities, different geographical jurisdictions, etc. Are there certain characteristics that connect all these departments, at least theoretically should connect all the departments when, when you think about this issue? You know, it's uh, what's interesting is that uh, we've always said that uh, law enforcement is is a local issue, and indeed, there are you know with eighteen thousand uh, local police departments, so, so many varieties. You've got very large police departments: New York City, Chicago, Miami, and they are going to have different resources and different priorities than you know um, a, a a Burlington or um, an Elizabeth City <laughs> police department. Right. But one thing that's for sure is that um, all of the officers um, that work within those uh, police departments um, have to abide by the Constitution. And there is a basic level of uh, human dignity that those who are being served by that police department, uh, you know, sometimes we forget that uh, uh, policing, it is a it is a public service. Uh, and at the public, we are consumers of that service. Uh, and uh, these police officers and these agencies are bound by the, the Constitution. And unfortunately, we have seen um, some very public uh, and not uncommon uh, instances of unconstitutional behavior um, that leads to, uh, in some instances, you know, lack of trust. Uh, in the community, and a lot of times the death of innocent people. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when, when you some of those concerns you just articulated, when you look at legislation like, say, the, the, the George Floyd Act, does it address some of the concerns you just outlined? Yes. So, um, you know, and, and it's really interesting to kind of pull apart a lot of the um, pieces of that, the George Floyd uh, uh, police justice and policing act that is, and you know, it's an expansive uh, act that has a lot of uh, you know smaller pieces in it. But those of us in this, this the realm of of police accountability really don't see anything new in there. These are a lot of these reforms are things that some jurisdictions on a local level um, have already done. Um, but what we also see 
uh, is, for example, the racial profiling piece, you know, just kind of a call to, um, you know, we're not like racial profiling is inappropriate and we're going to federally ask that local uh, police departments keep information related to the race of those uh, whom they uh, stop and arrest and that kind of thing. And that having that kind of data can be really important because it can highlight if there is a potential issue, if we see vast you know, disparities, it can help us understand what's happening. Unfortunately, uh, Representative John Conyers, um, who uh, passed away a while back, he had introduced a federal in racial profiling act more than I'm saying I'm going to say 11 times, but I think it was probably more than that um, at the federal level had introduced that uh, legislation and it failed. And so it comes back up again, you know, now in, in the policing act, but that there, there are a lot of, and so that's just one piece of that. And then, you know, I'm sure we can, we can talk about others and some of the more uh, controversial um, aspects um of of that proposed legislation but uh, that's just one piece uh, of how we might have uh, a bit more accountability around some of these issues and particularly more accountability uh, as it relates to race and policing because we do have a problem in in this country with um dispar the disparities within our criminal justice system but also in the ways that many of our black and brown community members are treated by law enforcement. Well, let's take a step back. Um, let's have you articulate, in your view, given the work that you've done on these issues, what should be the role of the police officer? So this is uh, this is a really interesting because I, I teach uh, a number of classes. Um, you know, my law students, I teach um, a criminal procedure class, and I teach a, a, a seminar on uh, police and prosecution. And I, and one of the initial questions that I have everybody go around is, you know, so what what role do we see police officers uh, play? Right? I mean, you know, you might, uh, the, you know, generally people may see police officers arrive on the scene of of an accident, a traffic accident that's happened, right? And so they are there in a caretaking role. Um, you know, one night. I, uh, years ago, I mean, I heard I was sure someone was in, in my house and it ended up not being someone, but uh, something <laughs> in my, in my home. And, um, and uh, that, that and the, the police responded and took care of it. So that's like in, in a caretaking function. Um, but we also see police officers uh, who investigate. If you have, you know, a homicide, they're going to be the ones who are talking to witnesses. If you have a robbery, some type of violent crime. And then we also see, um, you know, police officers, uh, in my view, um, there's a way too much emphasis on drug interdiction um, and particularly low level, um, the, you know, people who are uh, possessing or selling very small quantities. And, um, and so that has become a big part of what police officers do. Um, and we also see police officers responding to, you know, maybe in that caretaking function, responding to mental health calls. And um, it's really a lot of th these, these are very varied roles that require different levels. I mean, if I'm chasing and running down a homicide suspect, that is going to call for something very different than someone who's called me and who's in distress. 
but uh, too often we hear that kind of the same, um, you know, treatment, authoritarian, um, authoritarian, um, uh, the persona um, is is used for all of these different functions. And so when I think about what the proper role, I think that that is a that is a question that we as a society have to ask ourselves. Are we asking these law enforcement officers, the only people, by the way, in our society who um, whose job they can legally use force as a part of their job? They can they can if justified, they can end someone's life. And that is a very weighty responsibility and we're asking those people with that type of power to do all of those things and so my suggestion would be to um have people who have that type of authority and that type of role really focus on violent crimes the things that make us afraid to to you know leave our home or um, make us, you know, we're, we're afraid that something's going to happen to us in our home or, um, or, you know, to our families, to our children, focus on that type of behavior versus whether I'm, you know, wearing a seatbelt or whether I, you know, forgot to, uh, signal when my lane was changed. I think those are, those are two different, very different functions that, um, that, that two different types of individual with different levels of authority can do can handle. Well, I, I, what I hear you saying, uh, how do you draw then the balance between, uh, based on your last answer, we have areas where perhaps we're over policing in some areas. Tra- to use your example, traffic traffic signals and tail lights out, what have you, and then we might be under policing in other areas. So how do we draw that balance so that we don't fall into the trap of a one size fits all uh, paradigm? Well, I, I, I believe that we should allow communities to set priorities for, um, well, I mean, we, everyone talks about community policing, and I've often said, you know, you, you can talk to any police chief of those 18,000 uh, police departments that you mentioned, any of those police chiefs, if you ask them, what model of policing do you use? They're going to say, that they are using, that they're implementing community policing. And it's just become a buzzword and we've really gotten away from what it means. Uh, true community policing means working in partnership with the community. It doesn't mean you know being an occupying force within a community. Um, it means uh, having a genuine respect for the members of that community. So when you are you know, in some um, instances, it, it, as we saw, you know, with New York's stop and frisk, and again, this we call it, you know, stop and frisk in for in New York, but it happens in many uh, of our of our of our communities, indiscriminately stopping disproportionately um, black and brown um, young men um, and patting them down without uh, reasonable suspicion that they may be armed. This is, and which is a legal constitutional requirement. When you have that happening, um, you cannot be a part those, they are members of the community and you cannot then expect, you know, their mothers and grandmothers, uncles and brothers to, uh, cooperate with you 
um, when there's a crime that needs to be solved, when they feel that their young young child has been um, unfairly targeted. And, and we've seen it. You can see that the oral histories of some of, of, of what's happening um, in some of the communities where young men, the same young man stopped, you know, 30 times in a month. This, this, this happens. And can you imagine if this is, you know, just because you happen to live in a place where maybe this type of activity is happening doesn't mean that you're doing it. It doesn't mean that you should be, um, that you should have less of your, you know, uh, bundle of, of, of civil rights. So uh, I say all of that um, to say that I believe that communities should be able to, to set the priorities. If they have certain issues within their community, they can help define those and help uh, and partner with law enforcement as a way uh, to ameliorate those issues. But we're not going to do that or be successful. We are unfortunately at a time now where many communities don't want, don't want um, to, to work with police because of the lack of trust that's been created by some of those practices. But you, you mentioned rightfully so that every everyone. I mean, I think I think it's consistent that um, studies show that that when you look at any area, when you look at the amount of crime that's in an area, so-called high crime areas, it's a small percentage of individuals who are committing those crimes. But how do you respond to those? To those might say, look, you know, we're in a hair trigger situation. Um, we don't really have the luxury um, to say, okay, this guy's probably not doing anything. And what you're advocating might result in mal- people getting away with malfeasance. How do you respond to a charge like that? Well, I, I have several responses to that. First of all, I would say that our constitution is paramount and our constitution simply doesn't allow us based on a guess or a hunch to, uh, to, to stop uh, individuals, um, pat them down, invade their, their person, violate the, the Fourth Amendment without, um, you know, if you don't have the requisite um, level of, of suspicion or a probable cause, then there are, things, there are limitations to what you can do. And we have to respect our, our constitution is the first response I'd have. The second response I'd have is I'd say, well, we'll look at the statistics. We know that many of, um, and, and we know this um, with stop and frisk, um, and we know it also too with, um, with car stops, um, that um, it, we, there's a very low, what we call hit rate, right? You had in, um, in New York City millions of stops in a particular you know, time period and the hit rate where they were actually finding some type of weapon uh, or even other contraband, which you're not allowed to just look for drugs, right? You have to have to be reasonable suspicion of, of armed danger to, to do the pat down and look for the weapon. And even when they found that, the hit rate was very low. So what I would say is I would say it's a huge cost to have um, that type of police practice happening and, and sweeping up many innocent people uh, and huge costs to have that happen. And then not, well, first of all, for what? For, um, you know, possession of, of, you know, some low level amount of, of, of drugs, um, some of which are legal in many uh, areas of, of the country. So for that, um, or to this very low level of, the, of hit rate of weapons, what you're actually looking for. And it's really, um, it's really costly in terms of the relationships 
that are destroyed in the process. And we're just now talking about the, the stops. We're not even talking about how these stops escalate into uh, chokeholds and deaths of, you know, like, and, and killings uh, of people. Talk about, if you would, the, the, the tension that may exist between any type of reform uh, police accountability reform and and sort of the internal um, culture of policing and and what does that culture look like? Yeah, so um, you know, and a lot and a lot of my work, I've, I've identified um, what I call kind of like three characteristics of of modern era policing, and. Um, the first is the a, a group loyalty. Second is the propensity to believe that violence is a necessary part of the job. And the third is um, lax uh, discipline and supervision. So if we look at the first, um, uh, the group loyalty, um, it makes sense that you have uh, police officers um, be loyal to one another. They're in um dangerous situations sometimes and they need to have each other's backs and so this creates a, you know a brotherhood and i say that because we know that many unfortunately of our uh women uh, officers kind of fall outside uh, of this sometimes and um, there's also a lack of non-binary uh, police officers as well so this type of um uh, group loyalty and it can have really perverse effects if you do see something that's um, that's happened of some you know violation an officer violating someone's rights um, that those other officers uh, often either uh, are stand by and do nothing uh, or even at the very worst and we have lots of um, empirical evidence to support this. Um, they participate in, you know, an elaborate cover-up. This happened on Danziger Bridge in right after the wake of, of Hurricane Katrina. Um, you know, I can give you know numerous examples. Um, another um, thought is the propensity that, uh, or the thought that violence is a necessary part of the of the job. When surveyed, um, a lot of officers will tell you that they believe that being violent is a part of their job. Well, it's it's not necessarily, right? I mean, you have to, you may have times where you have to be, um, you know, use your um, authority, but a lot of those uh, instances that we identified, you know, you're checking someone's, oh, someone didn't signal, so you pull them over, or they don't have a seatbelt on, or, you know, something, something like that. That doesn't, you don't have to become violent in those uh, instances, or even disrespectful um, in, in those instances. And we see those situations um, escalating. And then finally, is when you see, uh, is this is this lax discipline or supervision, and that creates a culture that not only certainly tolerates some of the behaviors um, that we've been talking about, but it cultivates those, those behaviors. If I am a police officer and I have violated someone, someone's constitutional rights and no one calls me on it. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to, no one says, Hey, that was wrong. Hey, you to, you're going to get written up for this. Um, or let we need to call you in to retrain you to tell you how to do this different. If that doesn't happen, then you're creating that environment. And quite frankly, if, if that, if I'm doing that and my colleagues know that I've done something and they see that I'm, not disciplined, then they think it's okay. And then they go and they do it. And so if, if we accept 
that and that and that doesn't mean that this is all police officers. It doesn't mean that all police agencies have these issues, but we can look um, from at different studies, at different um, reports um, over the past few decades to know that these are three themes that emerge in, in modern policing. And, and many police departments do um, have um, issues with the three of these and the three of these combined um, uh, really creates um, uh, a, a wonderful uh, environment for uh, constitutional violations. And that's, um, and if we start to see patterns of that, we have to address it. Mm. I'm speaking with uh, Wake Forest University law professor Cami Chavis, and we're talking about uh, police accountability. Um, professor Chavis, um, what comes to mind, to your mind, when you hear the slogan, defund the police? Well, when I hear it, and I've been in, in different circles, um, you know, it depends on who you're talking to, really, because some people will say, oh, we just mean reallocating police you know, resources, that we're spending all of these resources, boots on the ground to do things like uh, inefficient, ineffective uh, stop and frisk, um, ineff- you know, uh, these different um, traffic stops and things like that, when we really should be focusing on other priorities. Um, uh, and some people literally mean defund the police. And we've seen certain, um, you know, municipalities across the country, you know, slack cutting budgets and things like that. Um, I personally, uh, I am an advocate not of defunding the police. And the example that I give is, um, you know, when I looked at what happened on January 6th and the way that what we saw happen at the Capitol, I need somewhere for those people (laughs) to go and spend their time and think about what they did, right? So I I believe that 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 there that law enforcement and incapacitation and thinking about like the the carceral state is appropriate for certain behaviors. Um, That doesn't that doesn't mean that it's appropriate for all the all of the behaviors that we are using. Uh, law enforcement for right now. So I, I, I think that um, the slogan defunding the police is meant to be very provocative. Um, but I think if we examine carefully, it's really more about let's let's reallocate and think about the best use. And, and what any good manager should be doing, police manager, um, any manager of any institution should be thinking about, well, where should I best put my resources? Should, should I devote my resources to um, hiring the best quality people who are going to be able to handle every all of these various roles that we've given to them? Um, or um, should I maybe spend um, some of those funds hiring and training uh, mental health uh, professionals to uh, to respond where appropriate to, to certain circumstances. Um, should I spend more time maybe thinking about, and people, you know, laugh and kind of snicker at like the police athletic leagues. Um, but this was a great way for, you know, folks in law enforcement to connect with members of the community in a non-confrontational way. Um, should we spend more uh, time and money on those types of relationship building things? Or should we spend the money to, you know, have police officers be an occupying force and um, 
terrorizing and terrifying the community. And so um, it's just a nuanced way of thinking. But I think the slogan is provocative. It's meant to be provocative. But I think it doesn't encapsulate what uh, a lot of us who really believe that policing needs to be transformed um, because of all the, the problems. Uh, we, I, I do believe that you can have um, law enforcement agencies and public safety solutions um, exist and they can coexist um, without uh, sacrificing uh, our, our civil liberties. So that, that is my, my personal belief. Uh, I, I wonder, just listening to your, your last several answers, I'm, it made me think, I, I wonder, are the polarities driving this discussion? And what I mean by that is that we talked earlier that, that in whatever is considered a high crime area, um, there's still a small percentage of people who are conducting the majority of, 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 that, of those crimes. And we're having this conversation about police accountability because there's a still a, a, likewise a small percentage of people who are reacting in a way that's outside of the constitutional norm. So in, is this conversation really being um, defined by opposite polarities? Yes. Um, and you, you, you know, you've mentioned this and I think it's a really important point that because we're, we're facing right now in our country a, a violent crime surge. But what, what we typically know about um, when we think about like gun violence in particular is that there's a small number of people in the community who are perpetrating those crimes. And if we can figure out who those people are and do some targeted um, work um, with respect to those uh, individuals, we can have greater um, successes. And so that is why having these policies, these indiscriminate you know, stops and frisks and car stops and things like that um, are not only, I mean, they cause a lot of problems with the community, but they're ineffective because it's not, you're not, you're not being surgical about um, responding to the problem. The same can be said with uh, police officers and police agencies. Um, it's widely known that typically um, you may have, at least in one particular police department, there were 5%, one particular very large metropolitan police uh, uh, police department, there were 5% of the officers that were responsible for 95% of the complaints. So if you can figure out, this is why that discipline and supervision comes into play, because if you can figure out who that 5% of officers is, then you can take care of 95% of your problems. Um, but this doesn't, it's not happening and it's exacerbated by the fact that people see uh, the behavior of some of those members, uh, some of their colleagues, and they're afraid of retaliation um, if they if they report it. So you know there there are some some really interesting parallels. But I think that what we have to do is we have to be smarter about um, when we're thinking about um, enforcement. We have to be um, smarter about and and investigate. Who, who is perpetrating these crimes? It's not everybody in the community and everybody um, doesn't, shouldn't have to suffer from you know, additional scrutiny. Just like it's not everybody in the police department that um, is causing um, a problem, but we can, um, we can uh, you know, look to ways to, to handle uh, both of those issues. I think that we can solve a lot of problems in our, in our um, society. 
And I think my, my, my next question sort of goes back to the whole notion of culture. And I'm, and I'm wondering, um, I know some have floated the idea of decertifying police officers um, because the bar is really high um, to remove an officer. Um, I mean, it's a higher bar to remove an officer than it is to for you to lose your law license. So, what, I mean, is, is decertifying police officers something that, that you think should be on the table, lowering, effectively lowering the bar and prohibiting officers who may commit certain behaviors in, sex, in, in, in this area and prohibiting them from going to another area and replicating those, those uh, actions again? Yeah, absolutely. And that's been, you know, again, um, when I think about this entire toolbox of, of police reform, you know, we mentioned um, the, you know, in ending racial profiling. There are other um, things that, that other tools in the toolbox, like the, like having si- the ability to, um, you know, have uh, civil suits and tort suits and to um, reduce some of the barriers uh, that, that come from there, like reducing um, the barrier of, of, of qualified immunity. There's criminal prosecution, there's independent investigations, there's, um, you know, police internal investigations, there's pattern of practice authority. There are lots of tools in the toolbox. And one of those um, is this idea of revoking your um, license. Um, in many um, states, um, you know, there's certain standards um, that you have to have to have, um, you know, to, to be able to be a law enforcement officer. And when you, um, I think, should be, you know, again, if I'm disbarred in, in one state, I'd hope that another state upon trying to grant me, you know, a license to practice would investigate, well, why did that happen? What's what, what's going on? And so that's, that's what needs to happen in um, policing um, as well. And um, because just because, you know, if I did something in in Miami, and I have a, a terrible track record. If I'm hired in Chicago, they they should want to know uh, what type of officer they're getting, what what comes with that as part of the hiring process. Um, and it may or may not um, result in you know not not getting hired. But we, this is something that we absolutely uh, need to look at, and it and it can be a tool because um, you know these rarely do these things happen in a vacuum. And we can look at Derek Chauvin, um, the, who, who uh, murdered uh, George Floyd, convicted of uh, and now serving a sentence for that murder. And uh, he had something like 18 complaints. You know, this was not, even if half of those were unsubstantiated, that is still a fair amount of, of chatter about this one particular officer. And it's difficult to make a complaint. It is, I, 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 I challenge any of your listeners <laughs> to, to try to, if, if something happens to them, and if you try to make a complaint, it is very difficult to actually um, be able to have, you know, at, at, at the, an internal low level um, uh, area to, to to basically have um, a complaint levied against an officer. I'm, I'm thinking uh, I'm going to come back um, be, to the 18,000 um, local municipalities. Is there a way that I guess a lot of what I'm hearing you say that some of this training 
could be streamlined so that if if I'm a police officer in Duluth, you mentioned Burlington, Vermont, or New York City, are there certain baselines that we all get to address some of the issues that, that you've been articulating in our time together? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, again, there, uh, I, and, and I am a, a fan of DOJ's pattern or practice um, authority, which essentially allows the um, United States Attorney General to, to file suit against the police department that has, um, that, that has shown a pattern of unconstitutional violations and to actually extract some, um, some reforms. Uh, to reduce the possibility of those happening in the future. So very promising. Um, what it what they typically don't do, right, is prescribe, um, you know, to really get to the internal uh, policies of, of a local police department. But this is something that we should perhaps think about. I mean, if a chokehold is wrong in in New York, isn't a chokehold, isn't it wrong in Chicago or LA or, uh, or Durham? I mean, so um, there, there's certain things. And again, you'll see the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act does try to address some of these things like um, uh, limiting chokeholds, limiting um, no knock warrants. And so there's um, a bit that we can do through the courts. There's a bit that we can do through legislation. But I think local communities have an extreme amount uh, of, of power to, uh, to decide uh, some of those standards. And we're likely to see a quicker movement, um, faster movement at the local level. But at some point, we're going to end up with a patchwork of, well, this is okay in New York. This is not okay in, um, in, in California. This is all right in North Carolina. And, and it would be uh, better to have um, some more, some broader federal standards around law enforcement. We, we have, um, I mean, we have the Constitution. I mean, right. So we we do have a, a floor, but when we're talking about, um, we can always raise that 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 floor. How much of this, and we really haven't talked about it that much, but how much of this um, in the current paradigm is, is racialized? Because there, there are certain practices that you may do on the south side of Chicago that you wouldn't do on the north side of Chicago. And so how much of the acceptability of some of these practices are racialized in your view? Right. Well, and, and it goes back to, you know, we've used the term a couple times in our discussion. We've used the term, um, uh, you've said high crime area. Well, the only thing that makes something a high crime area is the fact that you have police reports of that. And I, I happen to know, you know, as from my days as a prosecutor, as an assistant United States attorney in Washington, D.C., and our office did the local crime for Washington, D.C., and you would have thought that there was, you know, no drug use, no domestic violence, you know, nothing happening in certain areas of the city because they were only bringing defendants who are arrested in certain parts of the city. And that's just not, that's just not the case. We know that drug use in particular uh, happens, um, you know, uh, in the, the same, um, it happens it, it, within racial groups at the same rate, right? But if I, can only if, if a person can only you know use their drugs and out in public <laughs> right because of their living conditions or whatever then that's going to make them more susceptible to be um, arrested 
I'm in that way. Or if police officers are driving by looking for that in one area on, on one side of town, but not on the other side of town, if they're turning a blind eye and, and we, we see this and we know it happens um, uh, as well. So, um, and, and we can also see it um, with the way um, in which uh, opiates were uh, the enforcement and the public health um, approach that was taken there that um, w with respect to opiates that was not taken um, uh, that way in other things. I mean, uh, used to be um, other um, other drugs. But um, I, I I would say to you that um, again we can look. We don't have to go through conjecture and speculation. We can look at there's again studies and reports that show that for every type of uh, uh, of police uh, contact, whether it's um, using um, a baton, whether it's using pepper spray, whether it's placing someone in handcuffs, um, at every point on the continuum, the um, continuum of force, all the way up through police shootings, black and brown people in this country are subjected disproportionately to use of force by police officers. And so when you see that statistic, you, you have to ask the question, why is that? Why are those tactics reserved for certain members of the community? Kyle Rittenhouse, who, uh, whose name may be familiar, had just shot and killed two people and walked many yards with his assault rifles, was offered water by police officers, and was taken alive into custody. Whereas you have people who during DUIs and selling loose cigarettes and $20 count and alleged $20 counterfeit bills, right? This is um, why Mr. Floyd is not with us today. Uh, you have that type of behavior that ends in, in the death um, of, of, of black and brown people. So we have to um, own the fact that there is a, uh, that there's a racialized version of uh, policing um, and until we uh, own that, we won't we won't solve anything. Mm. And, and my next question is 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 is, uh, is rooted in the context of accountability. Um, and it may sound like revenge, but it's really rooted in accountability. But I wonder, would you consider restructuring? You know, when cities pay out um, to to victims of police violence, that that uh, as I understand it. Those payouts are now come out of the general fund, which are taxpayer dollars, as opposed to um, you know the, the insurance payouts from from or from the police budgets. Would you restructure those in any way? Well, I mean, I think that's a really complex issue because you know it's it's thought that well, if you have um, a, a civil suit that's paid, that this is somehow going to um, have some trickle down effect and affect police practices, but it often doesn't. Um, and even if it came out of the police budget or out of the, you know, the police officers, it doesn't come out of the police officers pockets usually because they're usually identified right by, um, by the, by the city. Um, but, uh, you know, there, and there have been, there have been cities that have played, paid upwards of $70 million in a year for, you know, multiple, um, multiple uh, egregious uh, acts and they've been settled. Um, and so I don't, I, I think it's important for the individual to have that, that 
opportunity to be compensated or it's an individual state to be compensated. Uh, I'm very skeptical about the deterrent um, effect, possibly because of how it's structured, but possibly just, you know, again, I don't think that that's really going to change you know, an officer's view of, you know, on the street, how they're, how they're going to interact. I think what's going to change that it's going to be leadership. It's going to be who it's going to be who we hire, how they're trained, um, how uh, and, and what's acceptable in that community. You know, we have all this body camera footage, which is really, if you were to mine that footage, and people are starting to do some of these studies and really see how differently some some residents are treated vis-a-vis other residents. We're going to see that you know we've hired some some people with some pretty clear bias. Um, and we're letting them out, you know, with a, a you know guns and badges to use their authority um, in communities that they they clearly don't respect. You 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 talked earlier uh, uh, about um, sending police officers out. Um, sometimes you know they're, they're they're doing traffic violations when they should be. But you like to see them focus on other areas. And some in some situations they're they're sent out uh, for for what's essentially. Uh, on mental health. I'd like to have you speak more about, uh, if you could, about those communities that employ um, crisis intervention teams. Um, is this an option um, worth uh, replicating in your view? Oh, yes. I, I mean, I think it's definitely um, an option worth replicating, worth studying, uh, worth thinking about, because there have been some uh, jurisdictions that have had really good outcomes. Um, but again, it takes resources. Uh, and so the, it, when we're talking about reallocating resources, you have to decide, do you, do you have enough resources to create this team, to train this team? And then I, I sometimes worry that you know, even though I, I definitely think that we should have these, these teams in this you know, crisis response, I think sometimes we uh, overestimate uh, how helpful they can be in certain situations. Uh, certain situations. Um, many times, I have um, I've more often seen uh, an innocuous situation be escalated by the presence of of police officers. Right. That that's what happens a, a lot of times. You've got this innocuous situation. Somebody's calling for help, um, and then police show up. You know, with guns or the you know wrong tactics, and it's it's escalated and it ends badly. But it would be good for us to study and experiment the situations where you know it's it's gone uh, right. Um, the the problem is that um, you know that that one time right where you have um, a social worker, mental health uh, person, uh, and 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 they don't have adequate uh, backup or protection and. Um, you know, so these are very complicated situations, but it, they're definitely what what we definitely need is the law enforcement officers who are responding to these calls should be specially trained so that they can de-escalate um, the situation uh, where possible. You, you just mentioned- always the sanctity of, of human life. You, you you just mentioned something in your last answer. I want to come back to. You said these law enforcement officers, and oftentimes, at least in the public discourse, maybe not in academia, but in the public discourse, you often hear police 
um, sort of, in my view, erroneously portrayed as crime prevention. Is that is that accurate? I mean, how should should we be looking at police as law enforcement or crime prevention? Should they be a combination of both? How, how do you see that? Well, I think that they can play. A, so, you know, when we think about crime in our society, first of all, certain things are only crimes because the legislature at the, at the time said they were a crime, right? Like it was a crime, you know, to perhaps uh, smoke a certain amount or have a certain amount of marijuana on your possession in Washington, D.C. At, at some point in time. And now that's not the case. And, and, and it's not uh, criminally, you know, enforced um, in that way. And so we have to think about what, what are the crimes that we're making? We have criminalized so much behavior in our society. And some things, even if we, you know, don't want them to happen, we don't have to handle it through uh, crime. But if, I mean, through the criminal justice system, right? There could be a civil fine for some of these behaviors that we would rather not see. And I think that we need to think more broadly about that. So that's that's one way that I would respond to to that to that question. And also to the officers, they cannot be, it is unfair, it is an unfair burden. And we don't talk about this enough, but the 21st Century Task Force on Policing talked about the morale of police officers. And we have to, to think, um, about the things that we are asking them to do and the situations that they're being placed in. And it is an unfair burden. And, and much of this, many, I know when I am working with um, law enforcement executives, they don't want their officers spending time on some of these smaller things. They want to um, be focused on, on the violent crime, the, the um, homicide, robberies, rapes. They want to investigate and solve those crimes and take you know, make sure that those people are not there to do that. And it's not these smaller, low-level offenses, is what I'll call them. Finally, assuming the requisite political will, we're going to assume that, that the political will is there. Um, uh, where, in your view, is a good starting place to, to, to chip away at, at this notion of police account- accountability or, or really to, to put something in place? What would be a good place to start? A good place to start would be for the federal government to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, because it contains, again, nearly every single thing that um, police reform, criminal justice reform advocates have been asking for over the past few decades, recognizing that um, that police uh, violence or police misconduct is often at the um, exists at the organizational level, and if we can change the culture, we can reduce um, the amount of, uh, of of violations um, and perhaps uh, deaths. So that's a good starting place. And it um, there's a, all kinds of things in that act about like uh, even having a national database, like that we didn't even have a national database to track police shootings. I mean, for years. The Guardian newspaper, a British newspaper, was tracking our uh, police killings. And we need to know, because we need to know where they're happening and where they're not. Like, where they're not happening. I want to know where they're not happening so I can know what is that jurisdiction doing right that these other jurisdictions are getting wrong. So I think that would be um, a clear and simple step. I also 
um, just briefly would say that but local communities have an incredible amount of power. We have seen in the wake of what's happened to George Floyd, many communities come out and um, you know, and change their procedures around investigations, change their procedures around use of force um, to involve, you know, more community members in some of the decision making. So um, local communities have an incredible uh, amount of, of power to effectuate change. Here. Professor Cammy Chavis, Wake Forest University Law, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) ¶¶